Amen. I'll invite you to turn your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11. We started, uh, I think it was last, uh, we had, it had to be last Wednesday night that we started a series that we have decided to entitle Faith Seminar. And uh, we just want to go through the subject of faith and talk about some things. Uh, my, my intent really is not to uh, tell you things that you don't know. Uh, as a matter of fact, um, this might not be the best series for somebody to start off with that has never heard anything about faith. Um, I'm not um, intending to go through the nuts and bolts and the, um, as we mentioned before, Brother Hagin's 26 lessons on the subjects of faith. There are plenty of other good materials and other series that we've done and other, uh, other things that uh, others have taught that, uh, that might be better for an introductory um, on, the, on the topic of faith. But my intent, as I started to say, is not to, to tell you something you don't know, but rather to help you realize what you've heard. You know, Paul prayed over and over again for the church that the eyes of our understanding would be enlightened or opened, that we'd know who we, ha- who we are and what we have. He didn't, he didn't pray that God would give us something new. He didn't say that, um, uh, you know, I, I pray that your ears are open to hear this new revelation I've got. He prayed that we would see or realize what it is we have. And, uh, and that's kind of my, uh, my purpose in this. Uh, the subject of faith is uh, there, there's plenty of good materials out there. Um, and, uh, and as a result, everybody seems to have their own take on, uh, uh, on how to teach it, what angle to come from and, um, different illustrations and so forth to use. And, and I'm not saying that one's any better than another. I, I think it comes down to whatever, um, whatever enables you to see it the, the most or the best. So, um, uh, so that's kind of where we're coming at with this. So Lord, open our eyes tonight. Amen. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. We see right away that faith and hope are not the same thing. A lot of people confuse faith and hope. They're hoping for something and they think they're in faith. But hope has no substance. Faith, however, gives substance to what you hope for. You may hope for a million dollars, but that doesn't mean you're believing for it. You may have hope for, for healing, because of some story you heard about how God healed somebody else. But that doesn't give you faith for it. Uh, Charles Price was a great healing uh, minister. And, and um, um, had some tremendous, tremendous uh, healing miracles throughout his ministry. And in, in 1940, um, well, maybe 41, 42, somewhere around there. He wrote a book that was titled The Real Faith. And, uh, and uh, he was an older man at that time, and uh, he um, made the comment, started off the, with the introduction of the book, saying, uh, I, I want to try to correct some things that, that it looks to me like people are doing wrong. And he talked about the difference between faith and belief. He said, I see a lot of people that have belief in healing because they know the Bible says so. But that's different than having faith to take hold of it. Now, I'm not sure I would agree with his, with his terms. I think if we start dividing between faith, um, faith and believing or faith and belief and stuff like that, it gets real confusing for me. So I, I want to keep it as simple as I can, but I understand exactly where he's coming from. I think what he's identifying as belief is really hope in most cases. People hope for something. They know the word of God is true. It has to be true because God said it. And so they have hope for something, but that's different than having faith. The difference in faith and hope is substance. The difference in faith and hope is substance. Hope has no substance. Faith is the substance for what you hope for. But then that brings us to another question, uh, maybe the most pertinent question, and that is, how can you have substance in something that is not seen? Because when we think of substance, we think of materiality. At least I do. Without a knowledge of the word and, and, uh, and so forth, who knows that there is a heavenly materiality? Who knows that there is a heavenly substance? Because we're limited to this natural realm, this material world. And so when we think of substance, we think of physical something. Something we can touch. Something we can, can feel with our hands and see with our eyes and, and, uh, and so forth. But that's not what it's talking about. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. I think a lot of times we make a mistake by taking verses out of their setting and using those, those specific verses or single verses to try to, to teach a doctrine. Paul is not trying to teach doctrine. He's trying to remind the Jews of something that they should already be aware of. So faith is the substance. Notice what he says. I'm going to read down through verse 3 all the way. Uh, start again with verse 1 down through verse 3. 
Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by it the elders obtained a good report. Different translations say uh, obtained God's approval or were pleasing to God or had a good testimony. Um, Whichever way you like it, you see what he's saying. For by it, by faith, the elders obtained a good report. Through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God so that things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. Now, verses 1, 2, and 3 talk about the unseen versus the seen realms. He's very simply saying, here's the definition of faith in verse 1. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. In other words, if it's not unseen, it can't, be ha- it can't have faith attached to it. We sometimes say that we believe in things that we see, but we really don't. We really don't believe in things that we see. We know things that we see. But you don't have to have faith for anything that you see. Right? You don't have to have faith that that chair, uh, in the chair that you're sitting in. You can see it. Now, if it's dark in here and you sit down expecting there to be a chair under you, that may take faith because you can't see it. But anything you can see, you don't need faith for. And faith uh, for the things that you believe for uh, concerning the word of God, faith ends when you can see it. It's not faith anymore. No, no, no need for faith anymore. Once something is seen, then it's knowledge. So you can see how then that when we get to heaven, faith will be done away with. Because the things that we believe for, because the word tells us to have hope in, once we see them, there's no need for faith. Amen? So uh, Paul, I believe Paul was the author of the book of Hebrews. Paul is writing and says, all right, here's the definition of faith. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. If it's not unseen, it's not faith. Faith is the evidence of things not seen. Uh, Stop there for a minute and and consider what that means. Look at how many people are prayed for and then they check their body to see if they can tell a difference. And they're waiting to believe when they can see a change in their body. Well, you don't need faith once you see the change. The fact that they're trying to identify whether some change has taken place so they can ascertain something about faith tells you that it's not faith to begin with. Faith is, the thing, is associated with the thing that you can't see and never the things that you can. Are you out there? Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Now, he's going to make some generalized statements. The two generalized statements. The first one is concerning the, the elders or the, their forefathers. Through faith, we understand the elders, or through faith, the elders obtained a good report, approval from God, were pleasing unto God. I like both of those, really. Good report doesn't necessarily mean anything. But it's saying, through faith, by faith, the elders obtained God's approval. In other words, he's saying to the Jews, the only reasons we reverence the forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the, reasons we re- the reason that we reverence the forefathers is because of their faith. Not because they were good looking or exceptionally strong or smart. They have a special place in our, in our heritage, in our history, because of one and only one thing, and that is faith. Their relationship to the unseen. The reason that the elders, the forefathers, obtained God's approval was because of their relationship to the unseen. Well, folks, if God never changes, and it is true that without faith it's impossible to please God, it says that further on in verse 6 of this same chapter, then if the elders obtained God's approval or were pleasing unto God by faith, how do you think you're going to gain God's approval or be pleasing unto him? There's only one way. And that is through your relationship with the unseen. Now, again, I'm sorry, I didn't intend to stop and, and, you know, press the pause button and keep talking about this stuff. I intended to just read all three verses. But I can't go past this without asking you a question. If our relationship with the unseen is the thing that is pleasing unto God, it's what makes us a pleasing unto God or it's what gains God's approval upon us and in our lives, why do we try so hard to get away from the unseen and deal in the seen? I'm reminded where Peter was talking about the trouble that he was in. He was writing to the Jews who were scattered abroad. And he's writing to Christians and he said, Now I know 
that you've got the joy of the Lord, although you may be in heaviness or, or um, uh, you know, you may be in a, because of your manifold temptations, I think it says. In other words, you may be in a hard place. You may not feel joyful right now because of the hard place that you're in. But know this, that the trying of your faith is more precious than gold. He did not say the end result of the trying of your faith is more precious than gold. He said the trial of your faith was better than gold. Now, what if the trial they're in is they don't have money? What if they're believing for gold? He's saying the trial of your faith, the good fight of faith is more precious than the gold that it brings. Now, now I'm way ahead of myself. I'll talk about this several weeks down the road, I'm sure. But if you understand these things, patience becomes an easier issue. But you've got to know some basics. You've got to be convinced of certain things. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Moffat's translation says it this way of verse 1. Faith means we're confident of what we hope for and convinced of what we do not see. And that's the position that's better than gold. That's the position that brings God's approval and, and pleases him. When you're convinced of what you can't see. All right, back to the elders. For by it... By faith, the elders obtained a good report, God's approval, and and a good testimony in their lives. And notice verse 3. Through faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God. Through faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God. Notice he's talking about faith in a general sense. He's saying in verse 2, by it, by faith, the elders obtained God's approval. Through faith, we understand. In other words, he's saying faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Here's its relationship to the elders, and here's its relationship to you. What does Paul say by the Holy Ghost that the first foundational point that every Christian should have is on the subject of faith? We should believe that the worlds were framed by the Word of God. Now, what does that mean? That means simply this, so that everything, notice it says world, it doesn't, uh, worlds, it doesn't just say this world, it doesn't just say the earth, it says worlds, it's talking about the universe. Paul knew by the Holy Ghost, along with the other Christians of his day, that there were worlds out there. I don't know what else they knew, but he knew that there were worlds out there, other planets, other stars, whatever. He said, This is what we understand by faith. We understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God. Framed means to to create, literally to mold or to shape. The worlds were made or shaped by the word of God so that everything that we can see, allow me to substitute material realm. This material realm, everything that we long for to, 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 to have the blessings of God revealed in, those blessings that we want to be able to see and feel and experience and enjoy and so forth. He said everything that you can see in this material realm was created by the invisible realm or that which you cannot see. So just very simply, let me ask you a question. Which is greater, the seen or the unseen? Well, the seen couldn't be greater if it was created by something else. The something else it was created by has to be the greater, the greater part, right? Now, let's go back to the creation of the worlds. Well, we'll back up to when God remakes the world and puts Adam and Eve here. God recreated the earth in six days. He made the sun and the moon and the stars and, and um, uh, made light. He made dark. He commanded the seas to stay within their boundaries. He created grass and trees and animals and everything that there was. He created oxygen for man to breathe, uh, trees for him to eat from, grass for him to lay down in. Everything that he was, ne- everything that was needed was was needed or was created before God ever made man. And at the end of the sixth day, God looked at it and He said, "This is good." On, uh, I'm sorry, at the end of the fifth day. On the sixth day, he created man, and he put man in charge. He made, in, in, made him in his own image. And at the end of the sixth day, he looked at it, and he said, now it's very good. It was only good before man was there. Once man was on the scene, he says, now it's very good. Was there anything? He rested on the seventh day. At that point in time, let's po- press the pause button. At that point in time, is there anything that can hurt man? 
Was there any such thing as a weed? Was there a thorn? Was there sickness? Was there any tree that did not produce fruit in the manner it was, in which it was created to, to, to function? Couldn't have. Because it was all created. And we understand by faith, through faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God. So therefore, everything that was here on the earth was created by a word, by something unseen. Why? To provide for man. Now, what does the unseen realm represent? The unseen realm represents God's will and God's plan. God saw the tree within himself before he created it in the earth. Now, I think there's a pattern in heaven for most of the things that there are here on the earth. That's just me. We do see that certain things are referred to in the, in the scripture about heaven. We know that there are trees, at least one tree in, uh, in heaven is the tree of life, and it bears fruit uh, each of uh, the 12 months. So God seems to work on the same kind of calendar that we know of, something similar anyway. God's got his own fruit of the month club, I guess. I'm not sure exactly how that works. But the Bible talks about, uh, about trees. The Bible talks about rivers. The Bible talks about other things that, that, uh, that seem similar, at least in part, to what we have here on the earth. So everything that God created, everything that we see, everything in this material realm, as it existed when it was perfect, was created by either God's plan or something that literally exists in an unseen world to us. Right? Then what happened? Man fell. But now let's take that apart for a few minutes and see what we, what we understand about that. What caused man to fall? Well, he disobeyed God. He disobeyed the commandment that God gave him. The commandment God gave him was not to eat of the fruit of the tree of, uh, uh, of knowledge of good and evil. God didn't want man to know good and evil. He wanted man to only know good. I'm, I'm glad to think... Uh, about things this way God didn't tell man now you watch out for stuff there's there's a lot of danger out there he told him to dress and keep the garden which indicates there's an enemy but the world was not his enemy the creation was not his enemy he didn't say watch out for those avocado trees because those are high in fat literally folks there was nothing that could hurt man The only things that could hurt man, the only things that could have an adverse effect on man came as a result of the fall. Now remember, everything that was created here on the earth was created either because it exists in the unseen realm already or it's in the mind of God. Either way, it shows God's will. Everything God created in the original, in the beginning, before the fall of man, represented God's plan, God's will, Or something that exists already in the material realm. God didn't have to create healing because there was no sickness. God did not have to create prosperity because there was no lack. How could Adam have lacked? How would it have been possible for him to plant corn and it not produce? How would it have been possible for Adam to do anything here on the earth prior to the fall and it not work according to his plan? He's in charge. He was created and given dominion over all the works of God's hands. What I want you to see, folks, is that it's not the earth. It's not the creation that withholds from us. Now, what happened? Adam and Eve disobeyed God and they fell. What changed? God said that there was a curse that came upon the earth from that point or would come upon the earth. He said, from this point, the earth will produce for you only by the sweat of your brow. That tells me that it didn't produce that way to start with. I don't know how it did produce. Maybe thy words. I don't know. Just an idea. A good one, I think. But nevertheless, we don't know for sure. But now he says it's going to be different here on the earth. He said the earth will bring forth thorns and thistles. Only by the work of your brow, the sweat of your brow, the work of your hands shall it bring forth. Then he said there was a curse upon the woman, a special conflict, a special adversity, a special enmity between the serpent, meaning Satan, and the woman. There is a war on women, folks, but it's not political. It's spiritual.
But how did things change? Did all of a sudden the earth become a terrible place? Not at all. In fact, God had to put an angel in the way back to the tree of life so that Adam wouldn't go back and eat of the tree of life and stay in that condition forever. So there was still the potential or the possibility for eternal existence because God created the world to be that way. But what changed? What changed was man's place in God's creation. Man's what fell. When death came upon the earth, when death came, literally when death came upon Adam and Eve, spiritual death I'm talking about, separation from God. When spiritual death came upon Adam and Eve, it didn't change the world right away. And had there been a redeemer come immediately and Jesus do something and say, okay, wait a minute, I'm going to take away your sin. Then the earth never would have changed. The earth changed for one and only one reason, and that was the process of death began to change the change the uh, the the order of things, the rule of order. We know that because of how long it took Adam to die. He died spiritually the day that he disobeyed God, but it took nine hundred and thirty years after the fall for death, physical death, to catch up with him. Can you imagine the degree, the measure? Of the life of God that he had to start with before there was no sin. I like to imagine it but I don't think I can relate to be honest with you. But there was such a magnitude of the life of God in that man. That it took 930 years for spiritual death. The effect of spiritual death to impact this natural world and his body. For physical death to overtake him. That's mind-boggling to me. So what changed? Well, Adam changed. Did the earth change? Not except by time or over time. But here's what I really want to get to, folks. Did the will of God or the unseen realm that was the pattern for this earth change any? Not one bit. Therefore... The will of God is the same. God never changes. So the will of God is the same right now as it was when he created the pattern for this material realm. The invisible realm, the unseen realm that was the source of everything that this material realm was created from is exactly the same now as it was then. Therefore, if only we, we as human beings, we as natural men and women... Still born, still made in the image of God. If there was some way that we could just remove spiritual death. We could go back to the original. We could go back and gain access to that unseen realm. Without the effects and consequences of sin. Turn with me over to Second Timothy chapter 1. A lot of places we could go with this. But I want you to see this verse. Second Timothy chapter 1. Verse um, 12. Well, let's start reading in verse 8. Paul's writing to Timothy, his son in the faith, and he says, Be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me his prisoner, but be thou partaker of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God. In other words, he's saying, Don't shy away from the testimony or, or your relationship with me. But realize that if you operate in the power of God, there is going to be a consequence. There is going to be persecution that comes against you. Speaking of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, God's intent. Here's that unseen realm manifest again. The unseen realm is what manifested Jesus. To his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began, but is now made manifest. Please notice verse 10. But is now made manifest, because Jesus has come to the earth and, and been crucified and raised from the dead. But is now made manifest by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ. What is made manifest, he's talking about, is the will of God from the beginning. Now made manifest by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ. Please notice the next phrase. Who has abolished death. 
Now, folks, there's a lot of scriptures we could use. For example, Galatians chapter 3, uh, verse 13, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. Well, that's great to know. We're redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. That's great to know. But please understand from God's perspective what took place when Jesus redeemed you. When Jesus died on the cross and when he was raised from the dead, here in God's point of view, from God's point of view, here's what happened. Jesus abolished death. Now, what does it mean to abolish something? It means to destroy it. It means to do away with it once and for all as if it had never existed. Now, if it never existed, if death never existed, what would our existence here on the earth be if we knew what, was, what belonged to us? Pretty much the same as Adam and Eve's. Because it restores us to the same place that Adam and Eve had in the beginning. It restores the earth to the same place to provide for us. Now, there's still a curse upon the earth. But you know, if, by faith, you can overcome that because the invisible realm doesn't have a curse upon the earth. So it restores us back to the original position. Now, there's still the, the, uh, the consequence of Adam's sin here on the earth in that the outward man is decaying. That has taken place because Adam sinned for us all. So th- there is aging. There is the aging process and all the things that go along with that. But still, the Bible gives you enough promises where you can overcome that. With long life, he'll satisfy you and show you his salvation. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. It says two places, it says not only will you renew your strength, but it will renew your youth like the eagles. So you can slow down the decaying process. Why? Because Christ manifested the will and the plan and the purpose of God in the unseen realm by coming to the earth, dying on the cross, being raised from the dead, and as a result abolished death and has brought life. Here's the God kind of life. This is Zoe life. The God kind of life and immortality to light through the gospel. Now, we do not have a promise of immortality physically, but you do have a promise of immortality spiritually. Now, remember when I was talking about Adam and Eve and when Adam uh, fell, it took 930 years for death to overtake him? Adam didn't have any more immortality than you do through Jesus. Now, things are different. Don't get me wrong. There is a place in the Old Testament where God said from this point forward, man's years will be 120 and no more. Physical, uh, um, what am I trying to say? Medical science cannot figure out outside of sickness and disease why the human body dies or wears out between 120 to 150 years. They have come to the understanding through testing and all this other kind of stuff. They have come to the knowledge and the understanding that the human body was created and made in some way by someone or some, somehow. They won't give God the credit for it. But they recognize that the human body was designed to last 120 to 150 years. And absent sickness and disease, they have no explanation for why it quits before that. Why? Because of the life of God. And remember, it all goes back to the unseen realm. It all goes back to the immaterial realm, the invisible realm. I'm not sure exactly which way to say it, so I'm going to say it every way that I can so that some way gets or catches somebody. It's all based on the spirit realm. It's all based on the invisible realm. It's all based on the unseen realm. Everything that we have, everything that that is available is based on God's original unchanging will as far as his plan and purpose was concerned, or secondly, something that already exists in the unseen or invisible realm. Now, that's what Paul is talking about when he says, now faith is the evidence, uh, I'm sorry, now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Romans 10, 17 says, so then faith comes by hearing. Why is hearing the word of God and hearing by the word of God? Why is hearing the word of God so important? Because the word of God is the only way that you know what's in the unseen realm. The unseen realm is revealed by the promises of God in the word. And apart from that, because we can't see the invisible with our natural eye, we've got to have information from some invisible realm source to tell us what's there. And that's the word of God. 
So the word of God is designed to reveal what's in the unseen realm. And your faith is designed to bridge the gap between the unseen and the visible or the material. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for. In other words, say it this way. Faith is the bridge between what you hope for and the things that you can't see. Faith is the bridge between the things you can see and the things that you can't see. Faith is the bridge between the immaterial or invisible realm and the visible realm. It's substance. It is given substance by one and only one way, and that is the truth of the word of God as to what is in the invisible realm. F.F. Bosworth made a statement that uh, uh, there's no telling how many years ago I read it. It's in his book, Christ the Healer, in the the chapter, uh, The Faith That Takes. And he made this statement about Mark 11, 24. Jesus said, therefore, I say unto you, he's talking about the subject of faith. Therefore, I say unto you, what things soever you desire, when you pray, believe that you receive them and you shall have them. And he said this. He said, because Jesus is telling us to believe that we receive the things that we desire when we pray. And that through faith, if we'll hold fast to our faith, then we shall have them or shall see them in this material realm. He said, it is very clear then that the blessings of God exist in two different forms. First, in the unseen realm. And secondly, in the seen or the visible realm. Well, like I said, I I can't tell you how many years ago I read that. Probably, well, close to 40. I don't know. Certainly more than 35, between 35 and 40 years ago. But boy, I just read it again the other day and it's, it's stuck with me. I, I don't know how many times I've read through the book, Christ the Healer. I have no idea how many times I've read that chapter. But I saw it the other day. Well, what, almost a month ago now. I saw it recently. And when I saw it, it gained... Uh, Faith gained a greater appreciation, a brand new appreciation for me. Faith is brand new for me now, folks. Now, I can tell you all my faith faith victories. I can tell you I've made faith work in a lot of different ways for me personally and for my family and for the church. Some of them you know, some of them you don't know. But I'm telling you, faith is brand new for me. Paul wrote to the church and he said, The word of God is quick and powerful. Full of life and power and sharper than any two-edged sword. You never expand or you never uh, get to the end of the reality or the revelation of God's word. And here's a subject that I cut my teeth on, cut my spiritual teeth on. And now it's brand new to me all over again. I see it differently. I'll preach it differently. I'll act on it differently. Because now I have a new appreciation, a brand new appreciation for the reality of the invisible realm. See, I, I don't know. I can't say that I exactly thought this out. But it was like faith was a grappling hook. It's like before faith was a grappling hook. Here I am in the material realm and I'm, I'm throwing the grappling hook over there in the dark. Now, the word tells me something is over there. The word tells me healing is over there. So I'm... I'm Winding this thing up, you know, getting it going and throwing it out there, trying to hook on to that thing called healing that I can't see. But in many cases, in many applications, I couldn't tell if what I was pulling is what I was trying to hook. Now, the word said that the healing was over there, but that doesn't mean my faith grabbed it. And I see so many people that are in that same type of situation. Now I see it totally differently because I'm not starting from here. I'm not starting from the material realm. I'm starting from the invisible realm. Because everything I see around me was created from something invisible. So all I've got to do is go back and look at uh, how God created the world and put Adam and Eve in it. And that's the invisible realm, either represented by the will of God or the pattern in heaven. Both of those are unseen to the natural eye. But both of them are more real than what we can see and feel here. Right? Right? So now I'm not trying to grapple on anything. Now I'm not trying to grab and pull something in. Now I'm starting over here saying, "Uh uh-huh, there it is. The word of God says, by Jesus' stripes I was healed. What that means is there was a literal specific point in time, a day that Jesus hung on the cross, paid the price, shed his blood to abolish death. That means to abolish all the consequences, all the results of spiritual death. 
Well, what are those results? Sin is one. So as far as I'm concerned, sin is abolished. That doesn't mean it's abolished in the world. Sin is still in the world, but it's not in me. Sickness is another one. As far as I'm concerned, sickness is abolished. Now, that doesn't mean there's no sickness in the world. There is. But there's no sickness in me. What else is part of it? Well, the Bible says part of the curse of the law is poverty. Lack. That's an easy one for me to see because there was no lack when God created the world. It was impossible for the world to not produce for Adam until he fell, until spiritual death came on the scene. But Jesus abolished death, so he abolished poverty. So I don't have to wonder now, is it God's will? It was always God's will. So now I can start from the seen realm and look over into the unseen and say, there's healing right there. I don't have to grapple anything over there. There's healing right there. There's prosperity right there. There's righteousness right there. Because it was God's original plan. It was God's original uh, creation. It was his original intent. He knew Adam was going to fall. That's why Jesus was slain before the foundations of the world. Before Adam was ever even made, Jesus was offered as a sacrifice. It was part of God's original plan. Original and eternal plan. So I don't have to look for what's there anymore. The word tells me clearly. The word is a road map now to the unseen. I can see it clearly. I don't have to wonder when I make my confession of faith. I believe I receive my healing in Jesus' name. I don't have to wonder if that rope is pulling on the right thing. I don't have to wonder. You know why I don't have to wonder? Because my faith very simply operates by believing in my heart and saying with my mouth. Jesus said, whosoever shall say unto this mountain, Mark eleven twenty three, whosoever shall say unto this mountain, be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea and shall not doubt in his heart. In other words, don't change what he says. But shall believe, now here's the believing part, but shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass. Then the result is he'll have what he says. Now I'm not trying to pull the rope. I'm not trying to work and make my faith produce something. Now I'm standing right here saying, healing which is very real in the invisible realm. The devil will come say, Oh, healing's not real for you. You must be doing something wrong. Mr. Devil, you're an idiot with all due respect. Because Jesus purchased healing for me. It was God's original plan. Jesus abolished death to restore man's right to healing. Healing exists in the invisible realm. Don't tell me it doesn't exist just because I can't see it. It exists in the, in the invisible realm. So according to Mark eleven twenty three, all I have to do is believe that what I say will come to pass and it will. What do I say? My faith is giving substance to my healing. Now my words bring it in. I'm not trying to work, 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 work. I'm not even trying to work on the confession. Now it's very simply a matter of my faith, which is expressed in the words that I, the things that I believe in my heart and the words that I say out of my mouth. My faith is causing my healing to materialize. It works the same way with prosperity. It works the same way with every other thing. Because now it's just as real in the invisible realm as it will be in the visible realm. And as far as God's concerned, he's happier when I'm looking at the invisible rather than looking at the visible. Now from a fleshly standpoint, I'm looking forward to some things materializing. But I'm gaining God's approval while they're still invisible. Does it make any sense to you? I see it so clearly. I have no idea if I'm able to express it. But I see it so clearly. I see it so, it's brand new for me. It's like I've never heard faith before in my life. And I've been preaching it for 30 years. 35. Close. Long time. Let me take the last couple of minutes. I, I'm, this is gonna, folks, this is going to be the theme of the whole thing. The invisible realm, the blessings that you believe in for, the things, the, uh, well, you remember how Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3 says you've been blessed with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. How is that possible? Because everything that the word says is yours, everything that Adam had in the Garden of Eden before he fell and more is available to you in the unseen realm. It's real over there. And all you have to do is believe that your words will come to pass. And then you'll have whatever you say. 
Well, how do we know we're saying the right thing, Pastor Mike? That's why faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. Find out what the word says is over there. Once you find out what the word says is over there, all you have to do is Mark eleven twenty four. Therefore, I say unto you, what things soever you desire, when you pray, believe that you receive them. Your word should be in line with, when you pray, your word should be in line with, healing is mine over there. It's invisible, but it's mine. It's mine because Jesus purchased it. And I believe I received my healing in visible form, in material form. That's why our confession, the confession of our faith is so important. Because we have to believe that our words will come to pass. I've always had trouble with that. I've always had trouble with believing that my words would come to pass. Because the devil always emphasized the my words. Well, who do you think you are? You don't think you're good enough. Well, I'm righteous by the blood of Jesus. Yeah, but you know you. Folks, I'd be lying to tell you that I hadn't struggled with that all my life. Now, don't get me wrong. My faith still worked even though I was struggling. But I'm not struggling with it anymore. I'm not struggling with it anymore in any manner whatsoever because God didn't say your words will work if you're good enough. He said your words will work if you believe they'll work. Well, how good a, how good a person do you have to be to believe that your words will work? I know that I mean things when I say them. If I tell my staff you better do something or else, I really mean it. If I tell my kids, no, we're not going to do what you want. We're going to do it like this. I really mean it. Well, why can't I mean it when it comes to the things of God? Why can't I mean it when it comes to the things that the Bible says belongs to me in the invisible realm? Well, of course I can. Everybody can. And that's all there is to it. To believe that your words will come to pass. Why? Because you're something special? No, because you're God's creation. Because you're a man or a woman. You're part of the human race. And God puts you in charge here on the earth in your life. It's not my fault. I'm sorry that the devil doesn't like that that's the setup. But that is the setup. Do you understand what I'm saying? Your blessings really exist all you got to do is call them in all you got to do is use your words and it likes it's like it sends a homing signal into the invisible realm you don't have to do anything it sends out a signal that draws those things to you and all you got to do is believe that they're coming by faith they're mine already materially they're coming and if i keep that position what did jesus say He said, you'd have whatever you said. He didn't say you'd have whatever you said unless. He said, you'd have whatever you said. Meet the conditions, you'll have whatever you say. Now, let me take the last five minutes. Give me five more minutes and let me tell you uh, three different things. uh, Faith inhibitors. There are three verses of scripture that you need to be aware of that will stop your faith from working. Now, the reason that I say them up front here. Uh, normally I would go through the series and in the end the last one by saying, now look, you need to be aware of this. But when Jesus talked about it, he used it kind of as a sidelight, sideline, side issue. Look with me to Mark chapter 11. I know we've quoted some verses, but I want you to see some now. Mark chapter 11, Jesus has cursed the fig tree. Next morning they come by and it's dried up from the roots and Peter calls it to his remembrance. And Jesus answering, verse 22, said, have faith in God. In other words, he's saying, Peter, even though you didn't voice the question, the implied question is, how did I do that? Here's the answer. Through faith in God or through the operation of faith. What was the operation of faith that Jesus used? He saw the fig tree that was not operating according to the way that God created it to function. It looks fruitful, but it doesn't have fruit. It's got leaves on it like it should have fruit, but there's no fruit on it. So what does Jesus do? He curses the fig tree. This tree represents the curse that has come upon mankind. Specifically, in Jesus' ministry, it represents Israel and the curse because they've rejected the Messiah. It looks fruitful. It looks green. High priests are doing their thing. They're offering sacrifices. They're doing all the right stuff. 
but it's not leading the people into freedom. It's not leading them toward God. It's leading them away from God. So what does Jesus do? Jesus curses the fig tree. He speaks to the fig tree and tells it to die. He says, no man eat fruit of thee hereafter forever. What he's doing is he's cursing the Old Testament, the, the priesthood, the Old Testament priesthood. He's cursing those that are operating under, under the law. He's literally saying, nobody will benefit from you from this day forward forever. Doesn't mean people won't operate according to the law. Doesn't mean Jews won't still come back to the place at the end time very much, uh, well, the, the first half of the tribulation period, and they'll offer sacrifices again in Jerusalem. Doesn't mean anybody will give up on those things, but Jesus is saying they won't bring anybody any benefit because the Messiah, Jesus, the blood, through the blood of Jesus, is the only way to God, not through the Old Testament religion. I get... Yeah. I'm dumbfounded by so many Christians that want to go back to the Jewish way of worship or the Jewish flags or the Jewish whatever. Give me a break. Jesus cursed it. Is you going to go back to the way they sang? Seriously? None of it was spiritual songs. None of it had to do with anything from their heart. None of it had to do with the new creation. But, oh, yeah, let's go to Israel. You got to be kidding. Israel has nothing. They don't even have a covenant with God. The only covenant that with, with God that exists today is Jesus. Now, there are some things that God said, here's what's going to happen at the end. And for Abraham's sake, he's going to do some things to help Israel. But even that is through Jesus. But people want to go back to the Jewish way of doing things. Okay, have fun. But that's what Jesus is doing when he curses the fig tree. It symbolizes his curse upon the Judaic religion, the Mosaic law. He says, no man eat fruit of the hereafter forever. What do we know from what Jesus said and the results that we see? What do we know about what Jesus did? Jesus spoke words that he believed would come to pass. Why? Because they came to pass. And that's the principle that he explains when he says, beginning in verse 22, have faith in God. Jesus answering said, have faith in God. For verily I say unto you that whosoever shall say. Notice the first thing he said about faith is has to do with your words. Notice he does not start off by saying, if you believe hard enough, if you have enough faith. See, that's where everybody focuses on faith, and that's where they make their mistake. The focus on most of the church world's faith is in the area of believing. Oh, I need to believe. I believe. I need to believe. Help me believe more. Help me believe more. That's not what Jesus said. Jesus said faith in God was about saying to the mountain. Verily I say unto you, whosoever shall say unto this mountain, be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart. We've explained that before. That just means don't change what you're saying. But shall believe in your heart, independent of your five physical senses, shall believe in your heart that what you say shall come to pass, no matter what it looks like, no matter what it feels like, no matter how long it's been. But shall believe in your heart that what you say shall come to pass, you shall have, not might have, not your chances are good, not if God takes a liking to you. You shall have whatsoever you say. Then he explains how it works in prayer. Verse 24, therefore I say unto you, because the principle of verse 23 is right, here's how it works in prayer. Therefore I say unto you, what things soever you desire. That's a pretty wide category, folks. What things soever you desire. How do we know what things we should desire? Well, you've got a whole guidebook in your lap it's a shopping catalog folks it's a spiritual catalog really it tells you what's on the unseen side of life and it tells you everything that you can draw to yourself through your words therefore i say to you what things soever you desire when you pray Here's how you pray the prayer of faith. When you pray, believe that you receive the things that you desire. In other words, believe from the point in time that you pray that the homing beacon is sent out. Where? I don't know. I can't see it. Does it go to heaven? It might. Does it go into the earth? It might. Where does it go? I don't know. I don't care. I'm not trying to swing the grappling hook anymore. I'm just sending out the homing beacon. How do you do that? 
When you pray, believe that you receive the things that you desire and you shall have them. Now, we already know from verse 23, there are conditions. That means you don't change what you're saying. And no matter what it looks like, you believe that what you said is going to work. And Jesus said unequivocally that it would work. Now, notice verse 25. And when you stand praying. And when you stand praying. Most of the time we stop with verse 24 because we only talk about the, how faith operates. But verse 25 is just as important. He said, and when you stand praying, forgive if you have aught or anything against anyone. That your Father also which is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father which is in heaven forgive your trespasses. Why in the world would Jesus attach forgiveness with faith if they weren't connected? But when you stand praying, praying what? Praying the prayer of faith that he just identified in verse 24. So what does that tell us? First of all, folks, you need to realize we have to adapt this to our new covenant. Because God does not forgive you as you forgive others. It was the way it worked under the old covenant. It's the way it worked when Jesus was here on the earth. It's not the way that it works now. Nowhere does it say, like it did in the Gospels, that if you forgive, then God will forgive you. Nowhere does it say that. Instead, it says in Ephesians and other places and other letters written to the church that we are to forgive even as God has forgiven us. Now, how does, God, how does that work? If we're to forgive as God has forgiven us, that means we're supposed to get, forgive others even before they ask or deserve it. How can you do that except the love of God is in operation? So this has to be adapted. These principles... These guidelines in verses 25 and 26 have to be adapted. But the principle is still the same. The principle is very simply this. Faith, operating, efficient, effective faith is based on relationship with God. Under the old covenant, the only relationship they could have with God was through the sacrifice and through forgiving people and expecting God to judge them or deal with them according to the way that they dealt with other people. That's not the way it works under the new covenant. Now... We have a relationship with God through the blood of Jesus that can't be broken except under extreme situations and conditions. But our fellowship is maintained by our love walk. So what's he saying? He's saying your faith won't work if you're out of fellowship with God. So broken fellowship with God would be a faith inhibitor. You could be doing all the right things. You could be standing here sending out the homing beacon for the the invisible blessings. The things that you can't see. But they can't come to you if you're out of fellowship with God. Galatians chapter 5 verse 6. Look with me over there. Here's the second verse I want you to see. Galatians 5 verse 6. Paul said the same thing just in a different more general term. Galatians 5, 6, Paul said, writing to the church, to those that were saved, he said, for in Jesus Christ, neither circumcision avails anything nor uncircumcision. In other words, relationship is not based on physical actions. Your relationship with God, your approval from God doesn't, is not based on the keeping of the law or doing this or doing that or not doing this or not doing that. Well, what is it based on? The last part of verse 6, the only thing that avails or turns to your advantage is faith which worketh by love. What's he saying? He's saying the same thing Jesus said, only he's putting it in a New Testament context. He's saying broken fellowship with the Father, step walking outside of the love of God toward others, will keep your faith from working. It keeps the blessings of God from finding your homing beacon. It's not that you haven't sent the beacon out, It's that they can't come because faith is based on relationship. Remember where we started? Adam was in the world. He was the God of this world, literally. He was the one that had dominion over the works of God's hands. And as long as he's in right relationship with God prior to the fall, anything he says goes. But once he fell, that relationship, that fellowship with God was broken. Now he's subject to the curse of the world. That's what Jesus abolished for us, but we've got to maintain that. Not maintain our righteousness, but maintain our fellowship by walking in love toward others. Jesus said a new commandment, John 13, 34, a new commandment I give unto you that you love one another as I have loved you. How did Jesus love you? When you did enough good to deserve it? 
No, he loved you while you were yet enemies of God. Turn with me to one final scripture, and that's over in James, chapter 4, I think. James, chapter 4. Actually, we better start in chapter 3, the last verse, because it all goes together. It says, in the fruit of righteousness, James 3, 18, and the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace of them that make peace. Everything he's talking about is walking in the peace of God, walking in peace with your fellow brother and sister. Chapter 4, from whence come wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence even of your lusts that war in your members? You lust and have not. You kill and desire to have and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you have not because you ask not. I'm going to read this to you from the... um, Uh, Which one was it? I think it's the Jewish Bible, complete Jewish Bible. James chapter 4, verse 1. What is causing all the quarrels and fights among you? Isn't it your desires battling inside you? You desire things and don't have them. You kill and you're jealous and you still can't get them. So you fight and quarrel. But the reason you don't have is that you don't pray. Verse 3, here's what I want you to see. Or you pray and don't receive because you pray with the wrong motive. That of wanting to indulge your own desires. He goes on in, in the um, uh, King James. It says you adulterers and adulteresses. He's not saying that the, the people he's writing to are full of um, adultery. You know natural adultery. People cheating on husbands and wives. He's talking about spiritual adulterers. In other words he's saying you claim to be Christians. But you're not in fellowship with one another. Which means you can't be in fellowship with God. Remember what John said. John wrote to the church. He said how can you love God who you can't see. If you can't love your brother who you can't. So what does walking in love have to do with this? Walking in love has to do with maintaining your fellowship with God. Because if you take a step outside of love. Your heart convicts you. Your heart condemns you. John said it wrote it this way. He said beloved if our heart condemn us not. Then have we confidence toward God. The implication is if our heart is condemning us, we don't have confidence or faith that our prayers are going to be answered. Let me tell you something I learned just uh, yesterday from my daughter's American history class in school. In the, the Middle Ages, in feudal Europe, landowners were everything because you couldn't live unless you could grow enough crops to feed your family and so forth. And so the, the people that were uh, wealthy enough to gather up the land, they controlled everybody and everything. And so people would go to them uh, um, uh, father, husband, whatever, would go to, uh, to a landowner and say, can I grow crops on your land? He said, well, sure, we can do that. You'll give me part of the crops. Uh, you'll wind up doing other things to improve the land as well, you know, mills to, to grind corn or whatever it is. You do that. You're responsible for building that, and then you do it. And you, you give me a percentage and so forth. And so that's whole, how the whole feudal system in Europe operated. But here's what I want you to know. When someone went and they uh, contracted or agreed with this landowner for whatever, acreage, 50 acres, let's say, of land to grow uh, crops to keep their family going and go to market or whatever to to make a living for themselves, the landowner would have a a relationship, would enter into a contract with the the person person that wanted the land in this way. The person that wanted the land would come up to the landowner and he'd hold his hands like this. The landowner would take his hands, put his hands on the outside of his hands and hold them like this. And then he would sway them this way and this way. Now the signification of that is the man that's holding his hands like this, his hands are being controlled by the other guy as he moves them around. It signifies that the guy renting the land or wanting to use the land uh, that belonged to the landowner is saying, I'm your man. Now, because this was your life and it wasn't just a, a business deal, they didn't separate business from the rest of their lives in, uh, in that time, uh, in that part of the world. And so what they would do is this. If the, the, uh, the guy that was using the land wanted his daughter to marry somebody, he would go to the Lord or the landowner and he'd say, I want my daughter to marry such and such. The, the baker's son over there, he's a good guy. His family's a strong family. Uh, he'll give, his daddy will give my, uh, my family four horses or whatever the deal is, you know, and that kind of stuff. The, land, the, the Lord or the landowner has every right to say, 
No, I've got somebody else in mind for your daughter. And he can be the one to decide what steps they take, who marries who, how their lives and how their families operate and so forth. Here's the significance of that. When people began to paint Christians praying, they began to do this. And that signified originally, I don't know what it means to anybody now, but it signified originally, Lord, I'm your man. Whatever you say, that's where I'll go. Whatever you direct, that's what I'll do. That's what James is talking about here, where he says in verse 3, you ask and receive not because you ask amiss with the wrong motive, not because you're wanting to do what God wants you to do, because you want to have what you want. And notice the whole thing is based, the context of the whole, the whole uh, verses that we read here is based on quarreling, it's based on striving, it's based on you having something instead of somebody else having it. So what is he saying? He's saying, Jesus said that faith is based on fellowship with God. Paul said that faith is based on fellowship with God. James said it this way. Your fellowship with God is, is evidenced by your right motives. By your right motives. I never will forget when I was working with uh, Brother Hagen, there was a seminar that um, uh, Lester Summerall came and uh, was teaching on. And faith wasn't his subject. Brother Hagen really told him, he said, now, Doc, he said, uh, don't, don't try to preach or teach doctrine here. We, he'll, we'll take care of all that. He said, what I want you to do while you're here is tell them stories. Tell these students stories. Tell them what you've seen God do. Tell them stories. But one morning, Brother Summerall got over into the subject of faith, and it was so, so, so good. And he was talking about some things and, and uh, just came from a different angle than Brother Hagen. It was just excellent, just marvelous. Well, after the service was over, back in the speaker's room, that the kind of had a hospitality thing, you know, some refreshments set out for some of the guest ministers that were there and that kind of stuff. And, uh, and some other ministers were back there and uh, well-known ministers. And they got to talking about things that they're believing for in their ministry and different things and difficulties and just a whole bunch of stuff. And... Um, well, it really kind of sounded like there were a couple of people that just kind of wanted the floor, so to speak. And, uh, and they were talking about uh, uh, how they were believing. And they'd had one guy was talking about, well, I was believing for a long time for this. And it didn't happen in, in time for when I needed it. And I don't know what happened or what went wrong and this kind of stuff. So it came a, became a big discussion among some of the other ministers there. And Brother Higgins just sitting over there in the chair, not saying a word, you know. Lester Summerall sitting there at the table with him, not saying a word. The people that have the answers, you know, nobody's talking to them. They're all just discussing among themselves what's what and this, that, and the other. And uh, so finally, Brother Hagin said, well, it's time for me to go. I'm going to go. And so they, they began to filter out of the room, and, and um, uh, the, the ones that were doing the talking left as a big group. So as it turned out, it was Lester and me that was left. And so I put in a call for uh, Lester's driver. To, to come he's ready to go take him back to where he was going to go to the hotel or whatever it was maybe he had an appointment that day or whatever i don't remember and lester's just very simply very sweet well sweet for him i mean you know he he was a rough old guy but uh, he looked over at me nobody was saying anything everybody was gone from the from the room and he said this he said if my faith's not working i don't examine my faith he said i examine my relationship with god and with that he put his coat on and walked out the door and I never will forget that as long as day I live. Now, whether you know it or not, he's saying the same Paul said. He's saying faith works by love. He's saying the same thing that James is saying. He's saying faith only works when you've got the right kind of motive. Now, how many times have you known people, maybe you've done it yourself, hope not, but maybe you've done it yourself. You've tried to make deals with God. God, give me this and I'll do that. I've seen so many people that have come to me and said, Pastor Mike, Pray for me. Pray, me. pray that God will give me an extra $1,000 a month so I can pay my tithes. Well, I'll never pray with those people. If you don't pay your tithes until you get that extra $1,000 a month, you're never going to pay your tithes. See, if you're a tither, you're a tither now. And that's the challenge. Do we do it when it hurts now? But see, so many times people are trying to make a deal with God where they want so much extra that it won't hurt when they do it. That's a tough deal to make. I think that falls into this category. You ask and receive not because you ask amiss. So those are the faith inhibitors. They're really all the same thing, but they're identified in three different ways. 
Those are the faith inhibitors. And thank God there's not a whole list and rule, set of rules and, and things that, that keep your faith from working. There's really only one thing, and that is maintain your fellowship with God. Otherwise, once you send out that homing beacon, that blessing has to find you. There's no opportunity for exception. You will have what you say. Amen. Well, let's pray. That was a long five minutes, wasn't it? Just realize that. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the privilege that we have to walk by faith. We feel so sorry for people that have always had it easy, Lord. Never had to use their faith to receive. Because walking by faith is one of the greatest, most precious gifts that you could have devised for mankind. Thank you, Father, that we have been blessed with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. Everything that we'll ever need in life has already been provided for us by the sacrifice of Jesus, his death, burial, and resurrection. All we have to do, Father, is recognize this simple force of faith that works every time. Father, we count it a privilege to stand in faith. We count it a privilege to go through tough times. Because we know that our faith in your word will always produce. We thank you, Father, that the trial of our faith is more precious than gold. And that our answer is on the way. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for being with us.